Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Thanks, bro. How many of you guys love Chris and Natalie? Aren't they amazing? It's much easier to... uh, to, to, you know, remember an announcement when you're out there rather than down here in the altar. And so thanks, Chris and Natalie. Um, well, good morning. It's so good to be with you. Um, just uh, really excited for what God's doing in this season. Um, our lead pastors, Joel and Lauren Lowry, are with some of our good friends, Beth and Carlos Padilla in Omaha, Nebraska this morning, uh, ministering at one of our uh, their church, the Kingdom Omaha, and so we just bless them. Um, really excited for what God's doing there. But um, how many of you guys are just ready to receive this morning? Anyone ready to receive? Awesome. Hey, before we jump in, I just want to take a quick moment to honor someone who's in the room. Tim Taylor, where you at? Can you can you just wave at the room really quick? We have Tim Taylor here this morning. Um, Tim is the son of Papa Jack Taylor, and uh, for those of you who know, uh, who have been here when Papa Jack has come in the past, um, he is such a gift to us, and so many of our leaders, he was a father, um, and and more so to just the leaders of this house, but father uh, to people all over the world, and so this morning, Tim, thanks for being here. We just honor you. We honor the legacy um, of your family, the Taylor family, and so thank you for being here with us this morning. Um, I'm gonna pray, and then we're going to jump in. So Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you, just as Chris was praying, that you have hand-selected this group of people to be alive at this point of history, and there is no accident in that. And I just pray this morning, God, that you would infuse us with courage to recognize that there's a reason we are where we are and that you would open up our eyes to see what it looks like to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in this Holy Rebels series over the past few months. Joel wrapped that up this past week. Uh, just a show of hands, how many of you guys felt challenged, impacted, were grateful for the Holy Rebels series? Um, I don't know about you, but it, it, it really did something in my heart. Um, there, there was, a, I'll say this, there was, there was quite a bit of challenge that came. And, and, and more than that, I think it gave language to what I could kind of sense God was doing, but didn't know how to articulate. And I think it's really important for us as the people of God to begin to recognize the season in which we live. You know, far too long, I think the church has gotten a bad rap for just kind of putting their head in the sand and just waiting on the rapture. Hello? (laughs) Right? But there's an importance for us to recognize what God is doing so that we can understand the time we live in. And like uh, the sons of Iskar, it said that they, they understood the times in which they lived, but then they knew what to do with it. And how, how many of you guys wanna know what to do in the times that we live in? And so I, I just wanna, this morning, kind of give us a, a charge out of the Holy Rebels series. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about kind of defining this cultural moment, but really my heart is, is to give us some tools of how do we move forward? How do we advance the kingdom in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in? So over the past few weeks, um, well, I'll say this. Uh, so I lead our college ministry, 
And for, since January, we've been studying the book of Acts with our college ministry. Two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 17. And uh, I was just meditating on Acts 17 uh, because I, I've always been particularly drawn to this passage. Um, I've had the opportunity to go both in Thessaloniki as well as Athens where Paul preached um, in Acts chapter 17. And so I've always loved this passage. But as I was reading this passage, I, I just kind of felt drawn to it. And I was like, this so defines the moment that we live in right now in culture. And so I just wanna talk through Acts 17 for a few moments. If you would turn there in your scriptures, we're gonna look at verses one through seven, and um, we're gonna jump in this morning. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse one, it should be up on the screen for us. It says, now when they had passed through Amph Amphipolis, there we go, and Apoll Apollonia, those are all the hard words, we're good. Uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. They took some of the evil men from the marketplace and they gathered a mob and they set all the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Listen to this in verse six, it says, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers to the rulers of the city crying out, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I don't know about you, but every time I read that verse, something inside of me says, I want to be named in the likes of those people. These men who turned the world upside down, they've come here too. And the question we have to ask is, is what were they doing to turn the world upside down? You see, what, what was it? Were they just causing disturbance? Were they just being rebellious for rebellion's sake? What was it they were doing that was turning the world upside down? Verse seven tells us, Jason has harbored them, and these all are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king whose name is Jesus. You see, verse seven is the reason why they were identified as people turning the world upside down. He says they're, they're going contrary to the commands of, of Caesar and they're saying that there's a different king. This king's name is Jesus. And so they were known as people turning the world upside down. And I find it interesting. We talked about this in the Holy Rebel series. We talked about the political spirit. We talked about the religious spirit. And what we find all throughout scripture is that both the political spirit and the religious spirit work in tandem to act against the move of God. And it's interesting even here in this passage that you have the Jewish leaders who were envious appealing to a political figure in order to stop the move of God. So you have the religious leaders and they're saying, they're declaring that there's another king whose name is Jesus. And I wanna say to you this morning that when we begin to declare that Jesus is king, over culture, that Jesus is king over political systems, that Jesus is king over religious systems, you will be known as a group of people who turn the world upside down. So they were turning the world upside down. They were declaring a different king. I just wanna go through Acts 17 for a few more moments 
We know that after Thessalonica, Paul goes to Athens. And Athens is interesting. It's, it's kind of the center of all philosophical thought, debate. This is where the brightest minds would come to gather. And Paul, it says in verse 16, when he goes into Athens, it says that his spirit was grieved because the city had been given over to idols. This was a group of people, bright-minded people with big ideas, but they had given themselves over to idols. As we move on, it, it, this is where Paul preaches his most, one of his most famous sermons called the, the Unknown God, where he's looking around and he sees the altar that says the unknown God. And essentially, he's, been, he's telling these people that you are worshiping all of these gods, and I see this statue, this monument you've made to the unknown God, and the God that you don't know is actually the God has created all things. And then he goes on to say, in him we live and move and have our being. And then we move on to Acts 17. In the last verse I'll read to you in, in verse 21, it says this, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. So you have a group of people, one, who do not want any other king Essentially, they're saying, you know, they're in opposition to the kingship of Jesus. You have a group of people who are given over to idols, which is essentially any other thing that is a lesser God than the God of the universe. And then you have a group of people who gather and they do nothing but talk about the latest ideas. And I just was reading this and I'm like, man, this is our culture. This, this is where we find ourselves. It's, it's what's the latest idea? What's the newest news? And we're redefining this and redefining this. And all along, anytime the message of the gospel is presented in such a way to say that Jesus is king, the world is like, yeah, I, we don't want a king. We, we don't want a Lord. We're fine with how we're doing it. And so I wanna talk for just a second kind of about the moment that we find ourselves in. I was reading a book over the past year called um, a non-anxious presence by a guy named Mark Sayers. And this guy, Mark Sayers, he's brilliant. Um, and the book is, it's theological. It talks about kind of the ways of God, but it also is very historical. And uh, I love the title, A Non-Anxious Presence, um, because this is how he would define the ministry of Jesus and the followers of Jesus, that, that we are called to be a non-anxious presence in a world that's riddled with chaos, um, and in his book, he talks about the gray zone. And the gray zone is kind of how he would define the moment that we're in. And so I wanna read this to us. It's a decent-sized passage from the book. It'll be up on the screen. It says this, we are in a time of significant and rapid worldwide change. The world is undergoing transformation, a chaotic period where most anything can happen and little can be predicted. Where yesterday's rule takers become tomorrow's rule makers, but no one follows the rules anymore. Where competing global visions collide with one another. Where remnants of the past, present, and future coexist simultaneously. The lightning change was happening in politics, technology, culture, and the global order, hinting at a new and different future. And these changes only seem to accelerate with the arrival, I'm going to say the curse word, the COVID-19 virus. This virus, like many before, was a history-accelerating crisis, yet as the third decade of the 21st century begins, we find ourselves in an unnerving transitory state called the gray zone. Confusion is the dominant sense we experience during transitional moments of rapid change. Therefore, it is vital to understand where we are 
and what is going on. We need a new interpretive framework to understand I lost my spot, the abnormal conditions that are emerging in the world. The framework I would like to offer to help us understand this moment is simple. The world is moving into a transitional phase, a gray zone. A gray zone is confusing and contradictory, filled with change and conflict. Everything seems to be up in the air. How many of you guys say that that kind of defines the moment that that we're in? Now, one of the things that he talks about in this book as the gray zone and it's not in this specific passage, but he says this, all throughout history, you could find these moments of rapid change, rapid upheaval, rapid transition, and most often, the gray zone moment becomes a seedbed for reformation. When things are really confusing, when things are shifting quickly, when things are kind of spinning out of control, you can always point to these moments of history, and those moments are an indicator that everything is about to change. I don't know about you, but I, just, I wanna speak to your heart for a second. Because I, to be honest, the past few years have been really confusing for me, right? It's just like, what? Especially working with young people, college students, it's like, what is happening? Why are things spinning out of control? Why the confusion? And it's hard to navigate that with a worldly perspective, but there's been something deep inside that's like, surely God is getting ready to do something significant. Is there anyone in the room that feels that? Like, we we just feel like you're on the cusp of something. And I truly believe this, that that God is getting ready to do something. He's doing something, but there has to be a way forward out of this gray zone moment. And I think the church in this season should not be discouraged, but that we should see the greatest opportunity that we've ever had to see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. He's moving us somewhere. So what's happened over the past few years really isn't like an abrupt happening of coincidence, but it's an accelerant that caused much of what was happening beneath the surface to become above the surface, and it's all come to a head in a short period of time. We've had worldwide pandemic, the likes that none of us have ever seen. We've economic struggle, mental health issues at an all-time high due to social isolation and other things. We've had an explosion of racial injustice, not that it wasn't happening before, but now the entire world is watching. Unparalleled political tension. The past 10 years, the tension politically is unlike anything any of us have ever seen before. Rioting, fast-growing social movements, and a movement of deconstruction where People are not simply questioning their faith. They're walking away altogether. And this is where we find ourselves. And the question I've been asking is, where do we go from here? What does it look like to move forward? And I I don't believe that we could continue to do church as normal. I don't believe that the church in the West can continue to allow the currents of the culture to divide us. And we cannot sit passively and watch the world fall apart in front of us. There is a commission that we've been entrusted with in order to see the gospel advanced in such a time as this. And so there has to be an answer. And as followers of Jesus, I wanna say this, we have a hope. The book of Hebrews says this hope is like an anchor for our soul. And it's not just a hope in a present moment, but it's a hope for our future. And I want to say this to you. When I say a hope for the future, I don't just mean going to heaven when we die. See, that's the first thing we think of because immediately our mind goes to, yes, right, we're going to get out of this thing and it's all going to be good and dandy. But I believe that there's a hope for the church 
that what happened 2,000 years ago in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus initiated this new creation reality by which we will see every wrong thing made right. Here's the deal. At Sozo Church, we talk about this a lot, but we believe in an advancing kingdom. We have it right here. Advancing the kingdom. And it's more than just words, but we do believe, like I said, that the nations of this earth will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. We believe that the gospel will go forth, the kingdom will influence the entire globe, every part of society. We have a hopeful view of the future. We don't believe that things have to get worse in order for Jesus to come back. We believe that we will see like the yeast and the, and the dough permeating all of society. And we believe that Jesus is coming back for a bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And the tension in believing these things is that it, sometimes it feels like we're going in reverse. How many of you guys say, yeah, I, I get that we believe that, but it doesn't feel like we're moving there, right? It feels like we're, we're moving in diverse. And, and, and he, he, here's the thing. I think the way that we move from this place is that we look at how the early church organized. And one of the things that, and I don't mean systemically, one of the things I've been studying this week is I was just looking at kind of the heart cry of the early church. And the heart cry of the early church was summed up in one phrase. Here's what we have to understand about the, the early church, even there as we're reading in Acts 17. They, they hadn't figured out all of their doctrinal positions they didn't have a statement of faith. You couldn't go to their website to read their vision and mission, right? But yet they had a rally cry. They had something that united them together. And this statement, this phrase, it was more controversial then than it is now. This phrase, this rally cry, it got people killed. It was what united them. And it was what gave fuel to a movement that 2,000 years later is still thriving. And the rally cry was this, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And in the, in the first century church, this phrase, Jesus is Lord, it wasn't even simply a statement of belief. That's what we've made it. Jesus is Lord, I believe. No, for them, it wasn't even a, a statement of belief. It was them saying, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and politics are not. Jesus is Lord in religion or culture or my feelings or not. Jesus is Lord, therefore he defines everything about me. I do what he says. I respond to his ways. And so the lordship of Jesus is not simply about what we believe, but it begins to impact every area of our lives, including the way we live our lives. Jesus is Lord is the way forward. You know, if you look at the early church before they were ever called Christians, um, which most scholars would believe that the word Christian was given to the church as kind of a derogatory term or like a slur. Essentially, they were calling them little Christ. But before they were ever identified as Christians, they were known as the way. The, the entire belief system, the entire group, this, this, this Judaistic sect or cult, if you will, was known as the way. And its adherents were known as followers of the way. Say the way. And over six times we see in the book of Acts alone that they're known as the way. And this is why that's important. is because the early church was not just known for what they believed, but they were known for the way they lived their lives. 
You see, Jesus didn't come to redeem us simply to a new belief system, but to an entire new way of living. I wanna read this to you from Brian Zahn. He says, he says, the common life of following Jesus together was called the way, not because it was the way to heaven. The afterlife was really never the emphasis, but because they had come to believe that in his death, resurrection, ascension, and throment that Jesus had inaugurated a new way of life. I've been, um, this is kind of funny, there's a TikTok trend um, it's going around right now. Some of you young people will get this. And essentially, it's, it's a joke. And it says, you know, it's like uh, girls ask guys and they, they ask the question, how many times a week do you think about the Roman Empire? Um, see, they all get it. It's the most random thing, but usually the guys are like, hmm, like once a week. And so Caitlin asked me, she's like, how many times do you think about the Roman Empire? I'm like, probably daily, honestly. She's like, what, why? Um, but this week as I was studying, one of the things that I was thinking about as it relates to the way of Jesus is, is, is the importance of how the early church was actually viewed by culture. And, and, and it's really interesting if you look at the early church and the way they lived their life. And specifically, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had some thoughts about the early church. And I just wanna read to you some of my findings over the past week. This is how the church was seen by the Roman Empire. Firstly, they were multiracial and they experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling to the Roman Empire. Ephesians 2 shows us, you know, that this is kind of a testimony to the importance of racial reconciliation as a fruit of the gospel among Christians. Another thing they noticed is that the early church was a community of forgiveness, reconciliation, and tenderheartedness. And I was meditating on that one because in that time, I mean, forgiveness is one thing in our culture. It's a powerful thing to forgive. It's, a, it's an entirely different thing when you're forgiving people who are murdering you. When you're being fed to beasts in Colosseums and the Roman Empire would say, these guys are forgiving. Like it's huge. They were known as being unrelenting in their forgiveness and reconciliation. The early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Most people saw what Jesus said as far as the Good Samaritan story as borderline promiscuous. But this type of hospitality was mind-boggling to the Roman Empire. During urban plagues where people would flee, Christians would stay in the cities and care for the poor and the sick and the dying, often at the cost of their own lives. Another thing they were is they were a community that was committed to the sanctity of life. This includes abortions, but it wasn't specifically just generally about abortions. We know that abortions in that time were incredibly dangerous and more rare than they are today. But when people would throw infants onto the trash heaps because they didn't want them, the Christians were known for bringing them into their homes. And the last one that I was kind of looking at is that they're countercultural in their sexuality which was huge because as you look at the Greco-Roman world that viewed sex primarily as a way to gain social status or power, just a way to feed an appetite, Christians saw sex as a way to give oneself to another entirely as God has given himself to us in Christ. And as I was studying these, I was just reading and I was just like, man, the church was making an impact because they were drastically different than the culture. And it wasn't about rules. It wasn't about 
religious duties. It was that they were living in the way of Jesus. They were known as followers of the way of Jesus. And so to them, it wasn't just, I believe this. It was my life looks like I believe something different. And as I've been meditating on how do we move forward, I think this is it. That the church has to be formed into the way of Jesus. The world is crying out for a church that would show them what Jesus would look like. And so for the last few minutes that we have together, I just wanna talk about a few things that we can do to live in the way of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just offer us a set of principles to follow, but through his spirit working in us, he shows us a new way to live, a different way to live. The first way that I think this is super important is Jesus models for us the way of formation. Say formation. formation. And essentially what Jesus does, in contrast to the old covenant, you see this major contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant. And Jesus moves us from external principles to internal formation. He says it's not about religious duties. It's not about what you do. It's about being transformed and living from the place internally as it begins to shape all of our being. Paul, Paul says it this way to the Galatians church who has been deceived by the Judaizers. He, he says this. At first, he calls them children. He says, dear children, I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. See, Paul was saying, my desire for you is that Christ would be formed in you, that you would be shaped into the image of Jesus. And so I, I really believe that the way of formation actually becomes a ground level. It becomes a foundation for us living in the Lordship of Jesus because it's to say, Jesus is Lord of my entire being, my past, my present, my future, every part of my life, Jesus is Lord and what he says shapes my world. I was, heard a story a few years ago, a pastor in New York City, which the more I think about, I, I realize how incredibly difficult that must be. And uh, in the context he was sharing, he was like, you know, some people, especially in the South or in the Bible Belt, it's hard for you to get people to do stuff, right? And uh, he's like, in New York City, it's hard for us to get people to stop doing stuff so that they can make time for God. And he was sharing um, about a young man who had came to Christ in his church, and the guy was like, man, I wanna get involved. I've, I've had this encounter with God. And he said, but you know, on Sundays, I work every Sunday. It's really hard for me to get to church. And he said, you know, you guys do those dinner parties, but I usually have plans like every night of the week and it's really hard to go have a meal with other believers. And he says, you know, that Tuesday morning prayer meeting, it, it's like really early and I've stayed up late the night before. And he's just kind of talking him through. And John Tyson, the pastor in New York, gives him a response. And it's kind of intense, but he says this. He says, son, I'm afraid you don't have time to follow Jesus. I remember hearing that and being like, it's so true of how we view the gospel, right? And we see in many ways, our Western culture says, I'll take Jesus and I'll just add him to my already established life. He'll be the sprinkles on top. He'll be the addendum to my well-organized life. And what I've found is this, is that we often recreate God in our own image. We create a God that meets our needs, our desires, our wants, and one that fits in our box and makes us feel better about the life that we live. This is the American gospel. 
But I, I believe this, God doesn't want to fit in our box. And he won't be recreated into our image. He wants to shape a group of people into the image of his son until we become a bright and burning light that attracts the nations to us. How many know that God wants to make you shine? God wants to put something in your heart that would actually become attractive to the world. And it's not flash and smoke machines and stuff like that. It's living in such a way that people say, I want what that person has. This is the, the, the way of formation. And I, I believe that much of this is the fruit of what dead religion has given to our society over the centuries. And one of the ways that, that it's done this is that we've made this distinction between a believer and a disciple. Or we've made a distinction between a Christian and someone who follows Jesus wholeheartedly. And we've done so by saying things like in church, hey, if you wanna repeat this prayer, then you're in. And then if you want to like sign up for discipleship, we have a class that meets once a week and you could just kind of jump in there, right? We make this distinction between being a believer and a disciple. Jesus never had such thing. He never created a distinction between people who adhere to doctrine and people who live in the way of Jesus. To him, it was a package deal. If you believe in me, the works that I do, you'll do greater works. And it's actually in our confession that Jesus is Lord, in our believing him, and in our yielding our lives to him, that he begins to live his life through us. But there's this gap between the believers and the disciples. And as I was meditating, I just kind of saw this picture of what lives between the gap, and it's called cultural Christianity. It's cultural Christianity. It's people that say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer, and, and, and I wanna say this. Joel said this two weeks ago. Cultural Christianity is dying in our country. Praise God. Because cultural Christianity has never transformed anything. If anything, it's made things worse. And I think there's actually an opportunity in this season for the church to live into the way of Jesus and begin to see transformation in the world like it's always been designed for. So this is the way of formation. I'm gonna move quick. I've got a few more. The second one is this, the way of humility. One of the things the early church was so marked by was their humility, their radical humility. Listen to this in Philippians chapter two, the words of Paul. He says, do nothing, starting in verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interest, but each to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is the ultimate picture of humility. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I was thinking about the correlation between offense and humility this week. And I don't know about you, but if you've been on Facebook lately, then you've probably recognized that our world lives in a constant state of offense, right? Everyone's offended at something or someone, and we're always just offended and offended and the, re 
the reason I kind of made this correlation is I was just thinking about offense and I recognized that the solution for offense is humility because humility is the realization that this thing is not about me, that the world doesn't revolve around me. And when I think we can move into a place of humility, what we begin to recognize is that we can actually be free of offense. As we look at, at the life of Jesus, what, what we don't really know is we don't know if Jesus ever felt offense. I'm sure he probably had an opportunity to be offended multiple times. But what we do know is that Jesus never reacted out of offense, right? If you look at the life of Jesus, he was rejected and ridiculed. He eats dinner with betrayers. Knowing that they're going to betray him, he was accused wrongfully. He was silent as he was being mocked. He was beaten, scourged, pierced, and died a shameful death. And Hebrews says it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus found joy in being humble and taking the low road. And so humility is the key to the unoffended heart because it teaches us that this thing is not about us. It's how can I lay my life down for another? How can I give of myself to another in order to see that person succeed? And I just think the way of Jesus is so beautiful, um, especially, and it's so countercultural, especially to the American dream, right? We, we all love the American dream. You know, it's two and a half children, white picket fence, never had a half a child or seen one, but, um, you know, statistically, it's, it's, and here's the deal. The American dream doesn't include anything about your neighbor. It's all about you. It's all about me. What can I get and what can I build and how can I build my kingdom? And the beautiful thing about humility is it says, what would it look like if I took what was mine and I used it to see other people thrive? What would it look like if I took all of the knowledge, all of the gifts that I've been given and its sole purpose was to help other people become successful or living to their identity or figure out what it is that they're called to do? And I just believe that this is the way the church is supposed to operate in the way of humility. The last one before we close is the way of demonstration. This is huge. The world does not need more principles and methods. The world needs a demonstration of the love and power of God. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, my, my, my message and my preaching were not with, with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. We owe the world an encounter with Jesus. And I believe the way forward is that we wouldn't just be a people who talk, but that we would be a people who demonstrate the goodness of God that we would allow the power of God to be put on display. We would allow the love of God to flow through our lives. And here's the deal. I have conversations often you know, with people who ask the question, you know, uh, the church is supposed to be supernatural, so you know, why don't we see the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in the church? Or why don't we see these things happening out in the world? And one of the things that I've recognized pretty much throughout my entire life is that people often create doctrine or theology around their experience or their lack of experience, right? And throughout history, the church has done this, and we've created theology around our lack of seeing God heal. And I recognize that this is difficult, right? Like, it's difficult to sit and grieve with someone as they've prayed for a loved one and they didn't get healed. I recognize that's, that's tough, that's challenging. 
But I believe there's a responsibility on the church to say we cannot allow our experience to dictate what we believe about the nature of God. If the Bible says we could heal the sick, I wanna heal the sick. If the Bible says we could raise the dead, I wanna raise the dead. If the Bible says that we could cast out devils, then I wanna see devils cast out of people. If the Bible says that we could see lives completely transformed, then I don't wanna settle for just getting people in a pew. The way of demonstration is the way forward. Now, here's one thing I wanna, I wanna say as it relates to demonstration. As we're talking about demonstration, this has been so heavy on my heart. It's not just about demonstrating signs and wonders, but it's about demonstrating the, the justice of God as well. I was thinking about Micah chapter six, verse eight. It says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. And I've noticed over the last decade, just in friend groups and some of the church streams that I'm connected with, um, this great divorce between two streams in the church. It's the justice stream and kind of like the charismatic stream, right? And what you have is you have the, the justice crew that says things like, Jesus fed the poor, so we feed the poor. Jesus said, take care of the orphan and the widow, so we take care of the orphan and the widow. Jesus spoke against abuse of marginalized people groups. Jesus spoke truth to both political and religious power. He fought for equality. And then we see from the charismatic side, it's like Jesus said, heal the sick, so we heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Jesus said, we'd speak in new tongues, so we speak in tongues. And I think that it grieves the heart of God that those who demonstrate his justice and those who demonstrate his supernatural power have chosen to divorce themselves from one another. And I just, I feel this, and maybe this doesn't relate to you, but some of you, I felt in the room that this was, this was gonna like touch your heart. I, I just feel like God wants to marry those two worlds, right? He's, he's not a God of power or justice, but he, he desires both. And I think there's actually this thing in the church that's happening where God is merging these streams and we're not just gonna be a people who do one or, or the other, but we're gonna be a people who feed the poor and heal the sick. We're gonna be a people who, who raise the dead and, and clothe the naked, who both speak power to, speak truth to power in both religious and political and, and fight for marginalized people groups while also seeing the power of God on display. And I really believe in the season, God is merging these things and he's showing us the way of Jesus in a way that the world has never seen before. And so the band wants to come up. I wanna close with this. So we, we, have, we have the way of formation what does it look like for the church to actually say Jesus is Lord of my entire life? What he says goes and dictates everything that I do. We have the way of humility, people who lay their lives down for the world around them. And we have the way of demonstration, people who are moving in both the power of God and the justice of God. And I wanna take us all the way back just for a moment as we wrap up here to kind of the moment that we live in culturally. Because where we started, if we're honest, it, like some of us probably have PTSD from the past three years, right? It's like you hear COVID and you're like, oh gosh, the mask, I could already feel it and I start like twitching, right? The past three years in many ways, four years, it's, it's unprecedentedly difficult for a lot of people. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of upheaval. 
people who walked away from the church, all kinds of stuff, a lot of shifting, and it's really hard to define what is happening. But I wanna read this to you from Romans chapter eight, verses 19 through 21, and I just wanna read it to you from the Passion Translation because I feel like this is another way to define the moment that we live in. It says in verse 19, the entire universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. For against its will, the universe itself has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of human sin. But now, with eager expectation, all of creation longs for freedom from its slavery to decay and to experience with us the wonderful freedom coming to God's children. You see, there's two ways to see it. We could see it as pandemic. We could see it as confusing. We could see it as redefining sexuality. We could see it as all the things we talked about, even specifically in the Holy Rebel series. Or you could see it as the world is groaning with eager anticipation for someone to show them what God looks like. And when we see confusion, we, we can see it as the creation groaning. And when you see things that are like, man, that's so wrong, what you can see, it says here that the creation itself has been trapped in the futility of human sin and they're longing for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. So this is the way forward, that we become who we were always created to be, living in the ways of Jesus, demonstrating to the world what, God actually looks like. Would you stand with me this morning? I just, I believe in, in moments culturally like this, there's, there's always options. And I think there's two options. We can either allow the drift of culture to rock us to sleep, or we could lean in and commit our lives fully to the lordship of Jesus and become the agents of transformation that the world longs for. This morning, I just sensed in my heart as I was praying that there, I, I wanna pray for two groups of people. If our ministry teams wanna come down. Number one, if you've never given your life to Jesus, today's a good day to give your life to Jesus. And here, here's, here's why I wanna say this. I remember when I was eight years old, I went down to an altar and I prayed with a man and repeated a prayer and nothing happened to me. <laughs> I was eight years old. You know, how, how bad can you be, right? I'm, I'm a sinner, right? It's like, eh, you know. And then I had an encounter with God 12 years later that shifted everything for me. And I think a lot of this cultural Christianity like, like I'm talking about is that people are just living with that little prayer that they gave when they were eight, 10 years old as a ticket to heaven. And I'm not saying that they're not going to heaven, but what I'm saying is, is they were meant for more than going to heaven. <laughs> they were meant to actually live and experience the fullness of what God has planned for you here on this earth and become an agent of transformation. And so, and so this morning, my call to the first group of people is if you've never done it, I wanna call you to give your life to Jesus, to make him your Lord, to say, God, I am allowing you to redefine everything about me and I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you, God. I'm giving all of my weight to you. We're gonna have some time in a second if you wanna come receive prayer and give your life to Jesus. The other group of people is, I just felt like God wanted to infuse courage to hearts this morning. Maybe you're like, man, I really want to 
live like that. I wanna walk in radical forgiveness. I wanna walk in radical humility. I wanna demonstrate the gospel, but I need courage. I feel like I'm caught between two worlds. I feel like I'm like wrestling. I feel confused. I need courage to move forward. I just feel like God wants to release fresh courage on people this morning. And then lastly, we've been seeing um, an, kind of an increased level of healing in our Sunday morning services. It's been really amazing here in the, t- and not even just here, but throughout the week. But if you are sick in your body, if you have pain in your body, any sort of lingering anything, we would love to pray for healing for you this morning. And then obviously, if you just need prayer for anything else, we'd love to pray for you as well. Our ministry teams are here and um, they'd be happy to pray for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are incredibly good. And even this morning, God, we recognize and we acknowledge that to live under the lordship of Jesus is the most fulfilling place to live. God, we're not missing out. It's not a lesser form of life, but it's where joy overflowing exists, God. It's where purpose and meaning are found, God. And I just pray this morning that you, just not even Sozo Church, but the church at large, God, that you would begin to shape us into the way of Jesus and that our rally cry would be, we we may not agree on everything, but Jesus is Lord and he defines every area of our life. And God, I pray this morning for those who don't know you that they would come to know you today. And I pray also for those who need courage, God, that you would just infuse their hearts with fresh courage to walk in boldness and be exactly who God called them to be. We honor you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need ministry, The altars are open. Feel free to come down.